Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Let's read Exodus 25, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the effort and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high, overlaid with pure gold, both inside and out and make a gold moulding around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upwards, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking towards the cover. Place the cover on the top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Then we go on to the second reading, which is in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 9. And that can be found on page 1206 in the Pew Bible. Hebrews, chapter 9, starting at verse 1 to 12. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, 
Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. When Christ came as high priest of good things that are already there, here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all, by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And a very good morning to you. It's very good to have you with us here today. And if you do have a Bible handy, do turn back to that first reading that we heard from Exodus chapter 25. It's on page 83 if you're using the Pew Bibles, Exodus 25. Uh, There's no handout this morning, but there'll be things coming up on the screen behind me. And if you want to take notes, there's plenty of space in the back of the green service sheet. Um, that you may find it helpful as we go through this morning. As we turn to these ancient and yet urgently relevant words to us today, let's pray for God's help. We've just been singing, clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne. Father, we do pray that as we look at these ancient words, you would help us to understand the enormity of what it means to be able to approach you. Uh, We do pray that you'd help us once again to be thankful for all that Christ has done, to clothe us in righteousness divine, that we may indeed approach you in all your splendor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of a series looking at the the book of Exodus, and this morning we come to that part of the book where we think about furniture and fixings, thinking about tables and lamps and curtains and wooden boxes. For those of us who enjoy interiors and color schemes and watching grand designs on TV, then then we might well find this part of the, the story gripping in and of itself. But my guess is that for many of us, as we turn to uh, this final third of the story of Exodus, and as we start to grapple with all the details of this tent in the desert and all these fixtures and furnishings, our desire is to want to rush through it as quickly as possible because they sound so 
alien to our ears. And we think, what's the point of all the curtains and the boxes and the wood and the gold? After the, the first half of the book of Exodus, it has been a thrilling story. We've seen how God has stepped in and rescued his people from Egypt, enslaved to Pharaoh, the, the plagues, the, the crossing of the Red Sea, and recently how he's brought them to his holy mountain. And it's been an incredible story. And then we come to this part, the final third, and it does feel a bit like an anticlimax. And yet over this week, and again in a few weeks' time, we have a total of 13 chapters of detailed discussion, discussions of the, the furniture and fixings of this tent in the desert. And in the midst of all the details that can overwhelm us, there is one verse that jumps out at us from our reading, which should stop us in our tracks. Look at Exodus 25, verse 8. Here is the Lord speaking to Moses. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. As we study the book of Exodus over these weeks, we've come to understand more of the kind of God the Lord is. We've seen, yes, he is a God of tremendous compassion. He loves his people. He's faithful to all his promises. But whether we like it or not, we've also seen that this God of the Bible, the one true living God, the Lord himself, he is a God of tremendous holiness. He is awesome. He is pure and righteous. He is unapproachable. He is, as we've seen, terrifying. We've seen the people, as they've gathered around the mountain, trembling at the sound of his voice. They cannot come near him. Only Moses has been able to approach. Uh, The reality of drawing near to this God, the Lord himself, is about as safe as us trying to draw near to the white, hot heat of a nuclear reactor core. And yet, here in verse 8, the Lord proposes to the people a bold and unbelievable plan to come and dwell amongst his people. Verse nine speaks of a tabernacle. Uh, This word simply means dwelling place. If you like, a house for the Lord amongst his people. We'll have a chance to think in a moment about some of the the details of what we discover about this house as we go through the chapters. But uh, here's the basic picture of what we find in in these chapters. Um, It's an artist's impression. Um, so, so bear with it, but I think it's helpful. If you were to encounter the plans we find in these chapters, you would discover around the outside a, a two meter high curtain uh, surrounding a courtyard that was about 50 meters long and 25 meters wide. If you think of football, it's about the size of a quarter of a football pitch, this outer courtyard. And as you walk through the front, you would discover straight away an altar and also a basin full of water for washing. But then as you look beyond these two initial items, there is the tent. It looks rather ordinary on the outside. It's covered with animal hides for protection. But within this outer covering is a two-room house of extraordinary beauty. I don't know if you can see it well on the screen, but here's what you find as you walk in. There's two rooms. The first room, the holy place, contains a table, a lamp, and a small altar for burning incense. Then in front of you is a curtain. Behind the curtain, there's a second room, the Holy of Holies. And in that second room, there is just one thing, a chest 
the ark, covered in gold, uh, covered by cherubim above the ark. And we are told in Exodus 25, right at the end of our reading, verse 22, that it is between the two cherubim, above this chest, the ark of the testimony, God says, here I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Which means these chapters in Exodus, they're no anticlimax. In fact, they show us something truly remarkable. They show us how it is possible for the one true living God, the Lord himself, in all his holiness and awesomeness to come down from heaven, and not just from heaven to the mountain, but not just from the mountain, down to dwell right amongst his people within the camp. And now, as he designs this house, we discover that it is a house that can move. It hasn't got walls but curtains, and the furniture can be picked up and carried on poles. And the point is that God will move with his people as they journey from the mountain to the promised land, day by day, living amongst them at the center of the life of the people. And because this is God's house, every detail matters. Look back at Exodus 25, verse 9. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. A few years ago, I remember watching a documentary about the Queen of England on uh, telly. She was about to host a banquet for various important people at her house. Uh, This one was the Windsor Castle. And uh, the documentary gave us a behind-the-scenes tour of of what went on as the queen prepared to host people in her house. And it was remarkable to see the level of detail she had behind the scenes. She was involved in picking the menu and picking the particular um, china that would be used to serve the food. And and she inspected the, the, the layout of where the guests were welcome and the table itself and the seating plan. Every instruction down to the very millimeter was carried out with great precision. And that's what happens because she is the queen. It's her house. Well, how much more so when it comes to this house where not the queen but the king of the whole world will take up residence. Every detail matters. And so these 13 chapters, although they are full of detail, they are showing us what it takes for this living God to come and dwell amongst his people in his way on his terms You'll be glad to know that we're not planning to work through every single uh, part of these 13 chapters this week. Uh, We have another week coming uh, later on this term to have a second go at it. But this morning I want to just focus on some of the big headings for us. I think the big idea for us this morning is there in verse 8 that we've already seen it. The Lord dwelling with his people. That's the invitation, the promise behind this uh, tent in the desert. And I want to pick up two points for us this morning. The Lord dwelling with his people, this is the great goal of the story of Exodus. Uh, We can see this from the flow of the story. Uh, We could have stopped, I guess, a few weeks ago as uh, the people arrived at the mountain and uh, they they heard God speak and they um, received his commands for how to live. We, We could have stopped there and said, job done, a rescue's been accomplished, God's people know how to live his way, Uh, it's all done and dusted, the story's finished, but the story does not stop there. 
Because the ultimate goal of the story, we now discover, is for the Lord himself to come and to dwell amongst his people. We see this also from the reaction of the people in our reading. At the start of Exodus 25, God instructs the people to bring all kinds of costly materials. So verse three, there's gold, silver, and bronze. Verse four, purple, blue, scarlet thread. That's the rarest and most costly kind of material. The list goes on, including verse seven, onyx and other rare gems. It is an incredible list that God asks his people to bring to him. And it's all the more incredible when we realize that he is speaking to a people who have no home. They're wandering around the desert with no fixed income. They have no crops to harvest. Uh, they have no mines to dig these things from. Uh, they are completely vulnerable. And yet God says, bring me all these treasures at great personal cost. And we find later on that they do. Willingly, joyfully, eagerly bringing these things to the Lord. Why? Surely because of what he is offering, verse eight. If you bring these things to me, says the Lord, then you can build a sanctuary and I will come and dwell with you. The people get how significant that offer is. Of course you bring whatever it takes to make this possible. God dwelling with his people. It is the great goal of the story. We also see this in the design of the tabernacle. For in so many ways we discover that this tent in the desert is in some way a return to the Garden of Eden. Back in the beginning of the Bible, as Tamar mentioned this morning in our all-in slot, we discover that God made the world in such a way for humanity to dwell in his presence in a garden. And for just a brief moment of time, they enjoyed sweet fellowship in the garden, Genesis 2, until human sin and rebellion destroyed the relationship and humanity were cast out of God's presence and out of the garden, unable to return until here in Exodus. And I reckon as God's people read the instructions for the tabernacle, their ears would have pricked up and they would have become excited, nudging each other saying, hey guys, this is a bit like the Garden of Eden. This is a return to something that we had that we lost let me try to show you some of the details that they would have, I think, recognized and understood to be so precious. Um, the tabernacle is to be covered with gold. There's gold everywhere. Verse 11, the ark is covered in gold. The ark lid, verse 17, is to be made from pure gold. We discover the, the lampstand, the table, the, the, the wooden frames for the, the curtains, all covered in gold. Notice also there are precious stones, verse 7. Why all this gold and precious stones and onyx? Well, back in Genesis 2, we discover that in Eden, the land was a land full of gold and onyx and precious stones. We discover that the plans for the tabernacle include a lampstand in the holy place that is deliberately made to look like a tree. Who makes a lamp to look like a tree? It's a reference, I think, back to it, the tree in the Garden of Eden. In Exodus, as a tabernacle is created, we find a repeated line that comes six times. The line is, and God said to Moses, and then Moses went away and did things. He, he created things that, that God told him to create. 
And the seventh command is God said to Moses, now rest and enjoy a Sabbath with me in Exodus. Sound familiar? Back in Genesis 1, we see God saying six times, and God said, God spoke, God spoke, things were created, things happened. And it all culminated on the seventh day, a Sabbath rest, a time for relationship between God and his people. In Genesis 1, we find the spirit of God hovering over the waters, ready to bring order out of chaos. Well, in Exodus 31, verse 3, we find the spirit of God resting on the workmen, preparing them to skillfully create the tabernacle. At the gates of Eden face east, so to the, the entrance of the tabernacle. I could go on and on, but I think the point is unavoidable. For those who first heard these plans being revealed, they must have realized this is like Eden. God is offering to his people the chance to return to what was lost, access back to his presence like they had in the garden. And I think it's no accident that when we come right to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, we find the new creation will be a place flooded with gold and precious stones. And it will be a place where God dwells with his people. God dwelling with his people, this is the great goal of the story. Which means the psalmist had it right in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That is the right response from God's people to the living God who offers relationship to his people. But I do wonder this morning if we are always the kind of people who, who want this kind of relationship with God. Uh, last week, Lauren and I had a, a brilliant time away on holiday. We're, we're down in Wales next to the beach. And, and the Lord uh, blessed us in many ways. He gave us uh, lovely weather, sunshine, and with great views walking on the beach and um, probably too many lovely ice creams after the walk. Um, we had a great time. But I have to say, as I was enjoying all these good gifts from God, I, I was wrestling with this very question. I love receiving gifts from God, uh, practical gifts, physical gifts, tangible gifts, and, and of course the great gift of forgiveness, knowing that my sins are forgiven. I love these gifts that God gives me. But Exodus asks us more than that. Exodus asks us, do we want and value a relationship with the living God? Are we people who restlessly, urgently, passionately long for the presence of the Lord. We'll see in a few weeks' time that as Christians, we don't have to come to a special place to meet with God anymore. We come rather to a special person. And yet the, the, the same goal is true. Today, God still wants to dwell with his people and he wants a people who long to be in a relationship with him, who, who yearn to be in his presence. That's our first point as we turn to this tent in the desert. God dwelling with his people, the great goal of the story of salvation. But as we turn to look more closely at the details of the tabernacle, we see our our second point is this. God dwelling with his people, 
the great problem of the story. I want to pick up three details of the tabernacle design which shows us uh, the problems that come with dwelling with this kind of God. Um, The first detail is the altar and the basin. So if if you were to um, uh, arrive at the tabernacle, uh, there isn't a front door into the courtyard like a normal house. There isn't a a doorbell to ring or something to knock on. There's no kind of welcome mat. But what you do notice as you arrive at the entrance of the courtyard is a great big altar. An altar is a place of slaughter and of bloodshed. Uh, We discover the details in Exodus 29 and 30 of how you you would kill bulls and calves and you would place some of the blood onto the the altar. And if you were a priest, you too would be covered in blood. And the point is clear. You can't go any further into this house unless a death has occurred and you've been washed by the blood of the animal that's died. Next to the altar is a basin of water and that is to to cleanse you of of all this uh, blood and and, and, uh, animal parts that you're covered with to prepare you to head further into and towards this tent. Why all the bloods and the water? The Lord is very holy. He is utterly pure. And we as God's people, we can't just waltz into his house, into his presence, for we are people covered in sin. And at the doorway of this house, the altar and the basin show us exactly uh, what is required to go any further. I remember a few years ago, um, after that earthquake in Japan that caused the tsunami, um, and there was that problem with the nuclear reactor. I remember seeing pictures of scientists being uh, dressed up in, in radiation suits preparing to head into the, the troubled reactor core. And they knew that in front of them in this core was going to be great danger. This place was not safe. I, I can imagine them as they're being strapped on with the, the breathing apparatus and all the kit. I can imagine them saying to the helpers, have you done it properly? Have you checked and double checked the, 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 the kind of breathing kit and the, the buckles and straps? Are you sure it's all in place? Because they know that they are entering a dangerous area. I can imagine the priests as they prepare to enter into God's house, wanting to get the sacrifices just right or else they will die. God is devastatingly holy. We cannot waltz into his presence or we too will die. And so straight away we're seeing that this house is no ordinary house and the way into this house is not straightforward. It requires blood and sacrifice and cleansing. But then if you are a priest who had been cleansed this way and as you progress further, you'd arrive at the front door, you'd open it and as you walked into the holy place, the first room straight ahead of you, you'd see next a curtain hanging down. This curtain blocks off the second room from the first. Here is a picture, again, that we saw. Not very clear, I'm afraid, but in in the first room, looking forward, you see a a curtain that's half-drawn in the picture, blocking off the way to the holy place where God dwells. And as you looked at this curtain, you'd see something that you recognize, and it would cause you to quake. Because on this curtain, woven into the material we discover in Exodus 26, verse 31, everywhere, are cherubim. Now, when you think of the word cherubim, don't think kind of warm, cuddly little baby smiling at you. 
Now, the, the last time we encountered cherubim in the, in the Bible was Genesis 4, as they stood at the gate of Eden with flaming swords saying, keep out, do not come back in, the way is closed. Cherubim in the Bible are awesome and scary and they tell you, keep out, don't come near. And so as a priest walking in, you see ahead of you this awesome and scary sign, don't you dare come any closer. Think of an electricity substation, high voltage at the center of the substation. You may have seen around the, the, the perimeter of the substation a, a fence, and on the fence often there's a little, a little picture of a person being electrocuted with a shock. And the point is clear, don't climb over the fence because if you do, you might well die of a shock. Keep out, stay away. Well, that's, I think, the sense of the cherubim woven into the curtain. Don't you dare come any closer, even to the priest washed with blood. And then finally, as your eyes move away from the curtain at the far end of the first room, you look around to you and you see next to you a table and a lamp. The lamp is to your left and we're told that it is to be positioned in such a way that its light shines directly in front of it. And as you look in front of it, your eye goes to the right and you realize that in front of it is a table. And on the table, there are 12 loaves of bread. I guess it would have looked something like this. I haven't quite got the the spacing sorted out. The 12 loaves of bread represent, we think, the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God. And in this first room, the holy place, there is being acted out day by day as the lamp shines onto the bread. We're being shown the great longing for God's people. That as the bread basks in the light of the lamp, so the longing is that God's people, the 12 tribes, would bask in the glory of God's presence. But the priest realizes as he goes about his duties that this is just a picture, that the bread isn't the actual people, it's just a longing, a hope, but it's not actually happening yet. The people can't come into the holy place, just the bread. And so you realize that this tent in the desert, whilst extraordinary and wonderful, shows us the great problem of the story. How can God come and dwell with his people such that they don't die? Well, we must look forward. As we come to a close this morning, I want to pick up um, the great themes of our second reading from Hebrews chapter 9. Again, if you have a Bible, do turn forward to Hebrews 9. It's on page 1206 in the Pew Bibles. And we find here, written centuries later, a great commentary on this ancient tabernacle uh, story. And the writer helps us to understand how we as Christians should understand what's going on. And um, we see uh, the, the details that we just talked about being picked up in Hebrews 9. So, so verse 2, there's the first room with the, the lampstand, the table, and the bread, the holy place. Uh, verse 3, the holy of holies, the, the curtain, the cherubim, the, the ark. And verses 6 and 7, we discover the shortcomings of the human earthly priests. You see, these priests could come in after special measures into the outer room to carry out the ministries, but only one high priest, verse seven, could come into the inner place, the Holy of Holies, and even then only once a year. 
and never without much blood being shed for the sins of the people. Verse eight then explains what's going on. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Then look at verse 11. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. This is a most extraordinary verse. It's extraordinary because we discover that the, the tabernacle of Exodus, this tent in the desert, is not the real tabernacle. There is a greater, more perfect, heavenly tabernacle. Uh, later on in verse 24, we discover that the, the first Exodus tabernacle was just a, a copy. It's a, a shadow of the real one in heaven. It's not a perfect parallel, but um, if you've ever been camping, then you might understand something of what is going on. When you go camping for a week, you, you pitch your tent, and for that week, your tent becomes your temporary home. And it's got all the the kind of things you need for a home to work, I hope. Uh, you've got an entrance, um, maybe somewhere to, to sit if it's raining and to cook. Uh, you've got uh, somewhere to sleep and to rest. It's got the, the right kind of shape of a, of a house, but the, the, the canvas tent is just a, a shadow, a, a model of the real thing. And of course, at the end of the week, you're desperately happy to get home to your proper house with a proper front door and a proper place to sit and a proper place to cook and a proper bed that's warm. You see, the canvas tent is a shadow that points forward to the real thing. It's not perfect, but that's something of what's going on here in Hebrews 9. The Exodus tabernacle is the shadow. It's not the real thing. It's not God's actual home. His real home is in heaven. There is in heaven a real house where God dwells, his true tabernacle. And then verse 12. He, Jesus, did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Speaking not of the Exodus tabernacle, for that had long been dismantled, but rather the true heavenly tabernacle, Jesus Christ as our true, final, perfect high priest, once and for all entered into God's very presence and in doing so, made a way for God's people to follow in his footsteps. For the blood of Jesus can do what the blood of bulls and calves cannot do, perfectly washing us eternally from all our sin and guilt, meaning we can, once and for all, enter into God's very presence. This is no small thing. When we see how every little detail of the earthly tabernacle mattered, when we see how much time and space is given to getting it right, and when we realize that was just a model, a shadow of the real thing, then we realize how absolutely dangerous it is to try to draw near to the living God, the Lord himself. And of course it prepares us to understand in a fresh and glorious way 
what it means for the Lord Jesus to tear the curtain and to make a way and to say, come into God's very presence. You see, for us Christians today, we have a perfect, final, eternal high priest who has made the very way for us that we need. And so as Christians, we come to God not through an altar and a basin. We don't come past a table of bread and a lampstand. We don't come to a curtain saying, keep out. It's all gone in Christ. For in Christ, we have perfect and direct and full and eternal access to the living God. And all this means, and it is, I think, almost beyond comprehension. It means that one day the great goal of the story will come true completely and perfectly for us. One day we too, along with all who trust in Jesus, will stand before God's very presence in the new creation, washed by the blood of Jesus. And so without fear and without guilt, and with no concern that something will ever go wrong again. Let's pray. We do thank you, Father, for these ancient words which help us to understand the the enormity of all that Christ has done for us. We thank you that there is a way into your presence. We thank you that that way does not in any way downplay your holiness or your standards, but rather we thank you that there is a way for us to be washed and cleansed. Father, please help us to be people who restlessly, urgently, passionately long for a relationship with you. Rejoicing that we have it in Christ, but not taking it for granted, and longing each day to live out that relationship in practice, cherishing the fact that we can approach you because of the Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.